Shalom, and welcome back to our series on Megillat Echa. Uh, today we're going to be devoting ourselves to a study of the second half of Echa Perak Gimel. If you recall in the last class, we spoke of, or perhaps the second two parts of Echa Perak Gimel. We spoke about dividing Perak Gimel into three parts, and we um, we studied the first section of Echa Perak Gimel, which is from Pasuk Aleph, from the first verse, until Pasuk Kaf to verse 20. Um, and we noted that in this section, the Gever, the anonymous sufferer, who uh, the Ibn Ezra reads is Kol Adam Yisrael, is every man, um, describes his suffering. And this description of suffering occurs in two parts. In the first part, he describes his suffering as if he is suffering at the hands of a vicious, cruel animal who mangles him arbitrarily for no reason. He is in darkness. He can't find his way. There's a tremendous amount of encirclement around him. He feels trapped. Um, and in this section, we, we or in this opening description of his suffering, we noted that this man is really very alienated from God. He can't find God even through prayer. Um, things begin to change in verse 12. And here again, he continues to describe the suffering that he is suffering, but it begins to dawn on him, in fact, that he's not suffering in an arbitrary manner, but that he has been selected. He has been uh, chosen for punishment. And here he begins to view his suffering differently. We noted in the last class that while this is a Theological step forward, he is beginning to understand that there's meaning, that there's reason, that there is uh, some sort of planning in his experience. But at the same time, of course, it seems to be an emotional step backward where suddenly he realizes that, in fact, everything that he's enduring is uh, very deliberate. Um, and this all leads us to the end of this section in which the man seems to reach, the Gever seems to reach uh, a, a low point. Certainly, it seems to be he's at an emotional low point. He says, my soul has rejected the possibility of peace. I have forgotten what is good and I said, I have lost my strength, I have lost my hope in God. And we noted at the end of our last shiur that the mere mention of God's name here is striking because suddenly it becomes glaringly absent in the first 17 verses of the chapter. It appears for the first time in the 18th verse, while God seems to be referred to and alluded to throughout the first 17 verses. And in fact, the hidden God seems to be the enemy in the very first pasuk when the man describes the beginning of his suffering. He says, "Ani ra'a oni evrato." I am the man who has seen affliction at the rod of his anger. Who is his anger? Presumably, this is God, but God is not mentioned by name. And the mere mention of God by name in this verse, in which he's describing basically that he's given up, that he has no hope, that he sees nothing good, nothing peaceful. He has no strength. And at this mere mention of the name of God, we begin the turnaround, or he begins the turnaround, and he begins to think about the fact that he is humbled by his suffering. Um, And this all leads us into the central uh, uh, part of this chapter. We uh, divide this chapter into three parts. We've already completed the first part, and we begin now with the center of the chapter from Psukim Kaf'alef, through Pasuk Lamitet. So that's verses 21 through 39. Um, now, Rashi already divided this section for us. Rashi says on 
Pasuk of Aleph, the very first Pasuk here begins with the words, Zot Ashiv El Libi, Alken Ochil. This I will return to my heart, which is, seems to be a colloquialism for this I will think about, Alken Ochil, and therefore I will have hope. Now it's very striking that the same word here that is used to say I will have hope was used in verse 18 to say I have lost my hope. And suddenly he begins to start thinking about different things that are going to offer him hope just a few short psukim, a few short verses after he said that he has no hope. Rashi says on these words, What is it that I will think about that will give me hope? And he says here, it's a very uh, interesting Rashi from a technical viewpoint because Rashi says he basically divides the section for us. He says, what is it that this man is thinking about that gives him hope? Verses 22 through 39. It's these verses that give him hope. And what are these verses? Well, these verses really are a reflection on God's ways, an attempt to understand that God, in fact, is a merciful God who has a plan who wants to treat his subjects with kindness, who renews his kindness every morning, who um, enables, who which enables, of course, this man to believe that there is a hope for a better tomorrow. Right? The fact that God is eminently faithful to his people, the fact that God won't abandon his people, the fact that there is rhyme and reason, that there is a plan in the world, all of this offers the man hope. Um, I want to sort of briefly review this section. Um, and in fact, I, I think that there are several important things to note about the section. Of course, we are unable to properly learn through this section, both because uh, I'm, my assumption is that people don't have Tanakhs in front of them, and of course, because uh, we I would like to, to get to the end of the parak today. But I, I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of this section. I do want to mention that verses 21 through 39 are not just the center of the third chapter, chapter of Echa, but they are the center of the center, because the third chapter of the book of Echa is the center of the book. And so we have here the center of the center, and um, these verses actually involve some sort of grappling with the preeminent question questions of God's ways, of man's place on earth, of the possibility of relationship between man and God, of man grasping God. Um, this, of course, is, cannot possibly be a comprehensive attempt to understand God's ways. It is just a model of how this man progresses steadily through his thought process. What we have here, Bissachakal, is 19 verses. I mean, uh, altogether we have 19 verses, which in each verse is just one sentence. So what can you possibly say in 19 sentences that is uh, that allows you to properly grapple with uh, with these questions, with the, these really very important questions of uh, God's ways in the world and, and man's relationship with God? Well, let's see. Let's see what he says. I'd like to further subdivide the section into three movements. And again, this is going to be a little hard to do without a Tanakh in front of you. I'll try to do it as best as I can. The first movement begins in Pasuk Aleph, what we just read. This I will think about, and therefore I will have hope. Uh, the word hope, Alkain Ochil, appears twice more in this section. And so, and, and it goes until verse 26. The last time that we have the word hope is in verse 26. And so what I'd like to do is to, to divide this section, um, uh, based on the word 
Ochil on the word hope, which appears three times in this section. And in fact, I'd like to call this section his reflections on the ways of God, which enable him to regain hope. This is the first movement, the first movement that he, that he has to make in his journey back from this, uh, place in which his suffering has caused him to lose his, uh, his, his hope and his desire to live and his relationship with God, of course, is to regain hope. Um, and this occurs as he considers God's ways. He says, Hashem, kilo tamnu, kilo chalu rachamav. The kindnesses of God have not ceased. His mercy has not ceased. They renew themselves every morning, he goes on to say in the next pasuk. And therefore, he says, Chilki Hashem, my portion is in God. Alkain ochil lo. Therefore, I will have hope in him. And then in the next pasuk, he says, Tov Hashem lekovav. God is good to those who have hope in him. Linefesh tidrishenu. To the soul who seeks him. And again, there's this, this sort of, uh, cycle, right? Now that he's regained hope, he reflects that God is good to those in, who hope in him, and therefore his hope becomes even stronger, right? It's a cycle which has some sort of snowballing effect. As his hope and trust gets stronger, it by definition strengthens itself. Now, I'd just like to point out here, that um that that uh, throughout this section this gever as he um as he makes his journey of grappling with god in order to return to god he utilizes the very same words that he previously used to describe his loss of hope his emotional low point i just want to point out four different words and, and this was a very uh, short description in verses 17 and 18 where he describes his loss of hope which words reappear in the next section? Well, we already saw that the word tochalti, which means my hope, which is what he lost in verse 18, appears in the section three times. And each time almost in an increasing um, uh, way, right? he begins by saying, therefore I will, I will hope. In Pasuk Kavdalat, he says, Alkain Ochil Lo. The hope has a direct object. It's not some vague hope, but hope in God, hope in something concrete. And in verse 26, the highest level, Tov Yachil Vidumam Lichuat Hashem. It is good for man to hope in silence utterly confident and secure in God's salvation. Once again, we have this word hope, yachil, but this time not a vague hope, but an absolute certainty that permits this gever not to groan or even to flinch in the midst of his misery, but simply to wait courageously and unflinchingly for God to save him. This demands, of course, a very high level of trust and faith. But again, as I said, we seem to have this snowballing effect of the regaining of hope. Um, the second word that I want to point out that is reused in this section in order to describe his comeback from his emotional low point is the word nefesh. In verse... Um, uh, in verse 17, he said, "Vatiznach mishalom nafshi, my soul rejected peace." And in this section, we watch his soul regain peace. Now, the word shalom uh, does not reappear in this section, but the word nefesh keeps reappearing. We see, "Chelki Hashem amra nafshi, my portion is in God." My soul says, "Linefesh tidrishenu." The soul now is searching for God instead of the soul, which seems to be um, have given up. Have given up on the possibility of, of obtaining peace. We see that he is searching for God and actually seems to be finding his portion in God. 
Another word that reappears in the very next section in order to combat the feeling of emotional despair that we have at the end of the first section is the word tov. We were told in verse 17, Nashiti tova, I have forgotten what is good. He has given up on good. And here in verse 26, he seems to find good again. Tov v'yachil v'dumam. It is good for man to hope in silence. And we're going to see at the beginning of our next section, Tov lagever kisa rav. It is good for a man to bear a burden in his youth. We'll talk about that in a moment. In any case, he seems to find good again. And the word vatiznach, mishalom nafshi, my, uh, my soul rejected peace. Well, we're going to see the same word is going to be used in the negative in Pasuk Lamed Aleph in verse 31. Ki lo yiznach leolam Adonai. Because God will not reject Man, presumably, forever. Okay, so we have here a turnaround, which is actually very, um, very um, neat and orderly from a linguistic perspective. All of the words that were used to describe the um, the emotional low point in verses 17 and 18, not all of the words, but many of them, repeat themselves in his comeback when he begins to move back, to make his journey back uh, towards God, these words reappear. Now, um, I, I want to just look at this, this, uh, this middle section of the middle section. So what we have here in verses 27 through 30, and I mentioned I'm going to divide this middle section into three parts. The first part is the regaining of hope. What is the second part? Well, the second part begins in verse 27. It ends in verse 30. And what we really have here is the middle of the middle of the middle, right? We said that Paragimel, that, that, uh, that chapter 3 is the middle sec- is the middle chapter, that this chapter itself we divided into three parts. And of course, the middle part we divided into three parts. So we have here the center of the center of the center. And what what does he say in the center of the center of the center? Well, it begins with the word tov. And what is it that he says is good? What is good? Tov la gever kisa urav. It is good for a man to bear a burden in his youth. Now, um, he, he goes on and he says, he doesn't explain why it's good, but he says, man should embrace this crisis, right? Yeshev badad vidom, and note that the word here is, he should sit alone, badad, and he should be silent when this is placed on him. And this, of course, recalls for us the opening uh, verse of the book, Echa Yashiva vadad, how has this city sat lonely, ha'ir abati'am, right? So here this lonesomeness, he says here in this middle section, is potentially a good thing. Now, again, um, he doesn't really explain why. He is limited in space. He only has 19 verses. But the Gevi here recognizes that the crisis that he experienced in this first part of the chapter can be potentially a positive step in his relationship with himself and perhaps ultimately with God as well, creating a deep and enduring relationship replete perhaps with the knowledge of what it's like to live without God. This recalls, in other words, without going uh, into this too deeply, he... um, he notes that man should recognize that suffering is a potentially positive experience in his relationship with God. Um, this is the center of the center of the center. He should regard his suffering as something which should cause him to introspect, to sit silently, to think about um, about how this suffering can um, engage him in his relationship with God and can deepen his relationship with God. 
In the final section of this middle section, he goes back to the question of Derchei Hashem, of the ways of God, and he concludes that the ways of God are not arbitrary, um, that uh, God doesn't reject forever, that God has a, a plan, God is not an animal-like enemy, arbitrarily pouncing on his prey, he is not irrational, he is not vicious or evil or corrupt, this is not part of his definition, um, uh, I'll read for you some of these psukim, which are really very powerful. Kilo milibo vayage ish. He did not make man suffer from his heart uh, in order to make man moan. In other words, this is not simply for God's amusement. All of this. kol to crush under his feet all of the prisoners of the earth. Uh, I, I think that this is an, an astounding pasuk. It's powerful. It's frightening. It uses this uh, imagery as if we are God's plaything, prisoners of the earth who he has created so that he could crush us mercilessly, cruelly, arbitrarily. Um, ultimately, of course, he brings up this image in order to reject it. This is not what God has done. He has not created uh, people in order to be prisoners of the earth so that he can use them as his plaything. But this, of course, is what uh, the, the arbitrary image of God's ways will eventually boil down to. If we think that God is doing these, thi- these, these things to us to make us suffer simply without a plan, then it appears as though we have been placed on this earth just to be God's plaything. And this is a terrible thought. And of course, uh, it appears, or certainly this is Rashi's reading of this section, I think it's really the only um, possible reading of the section, is that he is rejecting all of these possibilities um, and eventually concludes that um, uh, God created the world, God is the one who created good and evil presumably for just purposes uh, again this this uh, this uh, this pasuk is also very problematic i'll take us to the last pasuk of the section mayit onen adam chai what can living man uh, moan about what can he complain of gever al chataav each man only about his own sins. Uh, this itself, I think, is a is, is a, a stunning conclusion. Of course, the word chata'av becomes absent or glaringly absent from the first 38 verses of this chapter. Finally, there's a sense that the gever has achieved a conviction of sinfulness or has considered the possibility of sinfulness. He should call into question not God's goodness, but perhaps his own. And again, one of the things that we see in this chapter, which we also saw in the first chapter, simply by the amount of psukim that it takes us to get to the word chet, to the word sin, is how very difficult it is to achieve a conviction of sin. Hakarat hachet, the recognition of sinfulness, is itself a very difficult thing to attain, to arrive in that moment when, when, at that moment when a person can say chatati, takes a tremendous amount of effort and time. Um, there are two ways to, two basic ways to understand what it is that the Gever is concluding here. And of course, this is the concluding pasuk, the concluding verse of this man's attempt to journey back to God, to grapple with some of the preeminent questions of God's ways in an attempt to regain his confidence, to regain his desire to have a relationship with God is what can man complain of? Each man 
only his own sins. Um, Rashi says something very harsh here. Rashi basically says that the conclusion of all this deliberation is that because God is just and his ways are merciful and not arbitrary, and um, he determined that evil is present in this world, we must concede um, the, the not just the virtue of this evil, but we must conclude one thing when we are suffering, and that is that it must have been my actions that led to this. Each man is held accountable for his own actions because they bring the evil upon him. Uh, and this is, of course, a very difficult approach. Uh, this seems to be the approach of Rashi. I think we can, in general, read the section a little bit differently than Rashi. Um, not that only if man sin does this come upon him, but all that man can do in the face of of suffering is use it to be introspective, to turn inward in the face of such difficulties. This is the only recourse in contending with some of the absurdities of man's life, particularly the experience of suffering um, and ultimately death, is to introspect and to um, and to to turn inward in the face of such difficulties, similar to perhaps what the Rambam says in uh, the 13th chapter of Hilchot Avelut, when discussing man's proper reaction to death, he says that uh, everyone has to mourn, otherwise he is considered to be cruel. Um, and what should he do? Yifchad v'yidag v'yifashfesh b'ma'asav v'yachzor b'tshuva. He should be afraid and he should worry and he should um, uh, introspect about his own ways and he should use this as an opportunity to uh, return to God, to do tshuva. And all of this is awakens him from perhaps the dormant state that he has existed in prior to his experience with death, perhaps we could ex- uh, apply the same idea to man's experience of suffering. Okay, I'd like to move now into the third section while recognizing that this middle section is somewhat abbreviated. Again, as I noted, only 19 verses devoted to such a complex topic. We have to see this middle of the middle of the middle, not as a textbook, as a a way to teach us exactly what to do, but sort of as guidelines that take man on his journey from the low point that one perhaps experiences when, uh, when he first encounters suffering back in his journey towards God once again, his attempt to grapple uh, broadly with his relationship with God and God's ways in this world and his attempt perhaps to, uh, while combating the surface crisis, as Rav Soloveitchik says, to embrace the depth crisis and to try to use it as a an, uh, an introspective experience, which is ultimately perhaps <clears throat> also somewhat positive. All right, let's move into this third section. We'll call this third section the transformed man, right? Man who has gone through suffering and grappled with his suffering theologically. This begins in verse 40 and it ends in verse 66. I would like to further subdivide this third section into two very obvious parts. Once again, uh, the technical uh, features in the in this third section lend itself to this division. From verses 40 through 66, there are two different speakers. The the at the beginning we have the speaker who is the we, uh, the collective voice. 
um, which actually we have not yet seen in Megillat Echa. We have seen the eye of Yerushalayim, which we defined as the voice of the people, of the collective voice. But here we actually have the we, and this is the first time we've had it. This uh, takes us from verse 40 through verse 46. So the we enters here. I'll just read for you this first pasuk, uh, uh, actually familiar pasuk, Let us search our ways and seek them out, and we will return to God. And so the first thing that we notice here is that the giver turns into a we. The individual sufferer regains his community. From verse 47 through the end, he goes back to the I. But the first thing that I think we have to note here is that the Gever regains his connection to his people. He now speaks as an us. Right. So the, the, there are two questions that I want to ask here. One is, how does he do this? Of course, he was completely alienated in the first section. He not only speaks as an I, but he speaks as the lonesome Gever who is alienated from everyone. He is alienated from God. He is alienated from his community. Community. We noted it, verse 14, in which he was in the midst of describing his suffering. He describes also his relationship with his people. I was a laughing stock for all my people. I was their plaything all day. And of course, uh, we get a sense there that he is alienated from the people. He returns to the people here. I want to ask how he does this and why he does this. I and mean, just because he can be part of the people doesn't mean that it is self-evident that he should speak as a we. In fact, of course, in Megillat Echa, we very rarely have the we. The next time we're going to have the we, and the only other time in Megillat Echa is going to be the fifth chapter. Now, as as for how does he do this, I think the first thing that we have to note here is that he's no longer self-absorbed. The self-absorbed victim of, of the first section has sort of transformed himself <clears throat> into someone who is primarily regarding himself as part of a we. Um, we'll talk about that again in a moment. The other thing that I want to note is, is that once he reconnects to God in that central section, he, by definition, reconnects to his community. The recovery of the community is directly linked to the reconciliation with God and his ways. Because the common denominator of the community is our relationship with God. That is what binds us, not culture or family or language or state or land, but First and foremost, our relationship with God. And so it follows that when man breaks off this relationship with God through his sins in the first section, he negatively affects his relationship with the community as well. He feels alienated from the community. Perhaps he is actually alienated from the community. And it follows as well that now that he has reconnected with God, that he's reconvened his relationship with God, he is once again a part of the community. Um, as for why he chooses to speak here as a we, to regain his membership in the community, um, I think that there's two ideas here, two primary ideas that are taking place. Number one, he wants to help them, right? He is using his own experience, not just in order to promote his own interests, but in order to help the other. This is perhaps what Rav Soloveitchik calls in uh, one of his essays in Al-Hachuvah, Ha'alat Hara, 
the uplifting of evil, using one's past experience, and here Rav Salvation was specifically talking about tshuva, and the experience of going from being a sinner to being someone who is no longer a sinner, he can either reject his past, or he can use his past in order to uplift his future. So here what we have perhaps is that this giver recognizes that his experience gives him the ability to help others. He has learned from his experience how to uh, return to God, and he wishes to channel this positively in his life. What is in fact that he says to the people? He says, let's search our ways together. Let us return to God. Let us lift up our hearts in our hands to God. We have sinned. Okay, so the first thing I think that we see is, is that he is teaching the others how to undergo a similar process that he went through. And this I would call Ha'alat Hara. The other thing, though, that I think that is important to note here is that the communal voice has different rights, has different privileges, has different prerogatives than the individual when it comes to addressing God. Um, the I who approaches God with a request, a supplication, is in fact um, uh, perhaps going to be judged as an individual, whereas the the community, a member of the covenantal community of the congregation of Israel, um, has different rights when they approach God. Because, of course, God has given the prerogative of prayer and uh, uh, dialogue with God to the community. Um, the the idea of communal prayer is seems to be, in fact, and of course, uh, we are um, very much in favor of communal prayer because communal prayer has a different power than individual prayer. The right of the community to approach God is perhaps uh, somewhat different. And the communal voice also tempers the words spoken by the sufferer. Protests, objections, grievances can perhaps become supplication and prayer in the communal mouth. The anger at God is muted by the community, perhaps because the definition of the community is a community of faith. So by definition, when the community complains, this doesn't suggest an attempt to reject the authority of God because the community is defined by its faith in God, but rather an attempt to insist on our rights, the rights that have been vested into Knesset Israel by God himself. And so perhaps the fact that the uh, Gever here chooses to speak as a member of a community is also because he wants to um, he wants to turn to God with certain grievances, with certain protests. Let's look, in fact, what he says. And again, I think in the voice of the community, these protests are somewhat tempered. Look at what he says. Nachnu fashanu umarinu ata lo salachta. We indeed have sinned, but you, God, you have not kept your side of the bargain. You have not forgiven. What happened to the promise, promises that you gave our community? Salachti kidvarecha. This is a powerful complaint. God has a covenantal relationship with the community. God has engaged in, uh, has, has convened a breach, a covenant with the community in which there are mutual, um, uh, obligations. And so here the community turns to God and says, you didn't do your side. You clothed yourself with anger and you pursued us, you killed us, and you did not have mercy on us, right? And here again, what we have, um, it seems to be a certain 
grievance, but a grievance that the community perhaps has the right to level against God while the individual does not. And this explains perhaps why here the Gever chooses in his attempt to help his people and not just himself to speak also in the voice of the community. I want to make one more point about this section, uh, this plural section, and then I want to go on to the final um, section of Paragimel, um, or the second half of this third section. Um, I hope that I'm not confusing you too much. Um, and that is that there is also a pasuk in this section which speaks in the plural voice, which talks about tefillah. Now, if you recall, we had a pasuk in the first section of Paragimel, which spoke about tefillah, and we noted there that the Gever said, Gamki ezak v'ashavea satam tefilati. Even when I cry out and I plead, my tefillah is shut out. And we noted there that the word I is indicated three times in this pasuk, and there is no thou. The uh, anonymous sufferer at the beginning of his suffering is so deeply absorbed in his own suffering that he cannot see beyond himself, that he has turned inward. This perhaps is not a criticism of the Gever, even if ultimately it's not very effective in helping him to communicate with God. It perhaps is a natural experience of the sufferer who turns inward as a means of introspection or self-protection. What happens here, though, in this process of moving back towards God, in verse 44, the uh, Gever, when describing God's anger, he says as follows, Sakota ve'anan lach me'avor tefillah. You have clothed yourself, you have covered yourself with a cloud and not allowed prayer to enter. This is an accusation against God who didn't allow prayer to enter. And it actually has the same meaning as verse 8, um, where he says basically, you have not, uh, tefillah is, has not, uh, worked thus far, but there's one very big difference. In this pasuk, verse 44, in the third section of Paragimel, there is no I. There is only a vow, right? He says, Sakota the Anan Lach. You have covered yourself, uh, you, you have covered yourself with a cloud. In this Pasuk, there is no remnant left of the self-absorbed victim of the first section. Not only doesn't the I appear in this verse at, at all, but the thou appears twice. He is effectively returned to the possibility of a meaningful relationship with God in which he can see outside of himself. He can see the other. And that's the other point that I wanted to make. Now let's look at what happens here in verse 48. In verse 48, the I returns. The individual reemerges. And what happens when this individual reemerges? What does he say? Palgemayim tirad eni al shever bat ami eni nigra velo tidme me'en hafugot ad yashkif v'yere Hashem mishamayim. Um, what we have here is the individual reemerges, but he is a completely changed individual. He's not speaking about himself. He here, he reemerges here as a representative of his people. My eyes stream here because of the brokenness of my people. My eyes flow. They do not stop. They refuse to stop until God looks and sees from heaven. Here here we have what we might call a Choni Hamagel moment, right? Choni Hamagel being the famous uh, person in the Gemara 
who says that, who draws a circle around himself and says, I will not leave this circle until God gives us rain. The Geverher says, I'm going to continue crying until God sees the, my people, the brokenness of my people, the crisis of my people, the uh, young women in my city. The giver here has undergone, undergone a remarkable transformation of personality. He went from being alone, self-absorbed, almost arrogant in his victimhood, isolated from God and his people, to being a member of the community, a man who is part of a covenantal community, a man who is engaged in a meaningful um, dialogue with God, who is humble and selfless, who is an advocate of his people, in short, perhaps we might say he goes from being a man of fate to a man of destiny, a man who simply accepts and bemoans his fate to a, to a man who regards his experience as something which can enable him to uh, to determine his own destiny and to form his destiny. How does he do this? He does this through introspection, painful scrutiny of himself, of God, and of the world. Um, and so now we, 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 we uh, continue here with verse 52, and what we have here is once again, the Gever, the sufferer, returns to describe his own suffering. He has paused to try to use his suffering to help the other, but we end this chapter actually exactly as we began. The Gever returns to his own suffering. This, I think, is a very important point because what it tells us is, in fact, that nothing fundamentally has changed. In fact, um, the 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 man is is still suffering. We should not be deluded. His original situation is the same, and so he returns to his own personal story of cha- of tragedy. But he is a changed individual. His perceptions of the world, of himself, of God, of his community, and therefore of his own suffering have totally changed. And so, therefore, here when he describes his suffering, he he actually once again describes it using some of the same descriptions that he used, or some of the same motifs that he used in the original section. Let's look here, for example, in Nunbet, Tzod Saduni Katsipor Oivai Chinam. They have surely entrapped me like a bird, my enemies, for no reason. Once again, we have that animal imagery. We also have the encirclement imagery. Tzamtu Vabor Chayai Vayadu Evenbi. They have uh, cut off my life in a pit, and they are throwing stones at me. In other words, there's a sense of entrapment Safu Maim al Rashi Amarti Nigzarti. Water seems to be floating almost above my head, and I said, I am doomed. I have been decreed against. But then what do we have in the next Pasuk? Karati Shimcha Hashem, Mi Bor Tachtiot. I called on your name, God, from the depths of the pit. What do we have here? We have here the motif of the animal, right? They trap me like a bird for no reason. Uh, the the sense here is that he's entrapped, and yet there are two very important differences. There is no darkness imagery, and the enemy, of course, is not God. God is um, is is uh, is not re- the one who is primarily responsible for the suffering. Uh, the enemy is, in fact, also a fierce predator waiting to pounce, rejoicing in the suffering of his um, victim. But the enemy shifts from being God to the actual enemy, the one who truly is cruel and brutal. And of course here, um, God, he enlists in order to help him. I see here as well, um, 
I called on your name, God, from the depths of the pit, a reference to his own spiritual journey, which we, of course, noted began the turnaround with the mere mention of the name of God. In other words, when he was in the depths of despair, he called on God's name, and that is what began to take him out of of um, out of this despair. I'll just mention in um, in to close that the uh, the continuation of this pasuk of this parak of this section uh, has the man turning to God to fight his battles, to see him, to help him, to listen to him to look at him and to avenge him from the enemies, to save him from the enemies and to give the enemies what they deserve. Um, and this, of course, like all other uh, chapters in the Megillah, ends with a call for vengeance on the enemies. Um, but I want to note two concluding points. One is to note that the last words of this parak, Tirdof be'af v'tashmidem mitachat shmei Hashem, chase them with anger and destroy them from under the 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 heavens of God from under the skies of God. What we see here is is that our parak begins with the word ani, with the word I, and it ends with the word God. And this perhaps illustrates, perhaps um, better than anything else, the astonishing development of this suffering individual that we've remarked upon throughout our study of this chapter. The chapter opens with a self-absorbed victim. It ends with the giver finding God. And it is, of course, particularly striking that God does not actually respond throughout the chapter. It is up to man to reform his relationship with God with the conviction to maintain it even perhaps without a divine response. This is one of the main challenges of post-Beit HaMikdash Judaism. And in fact, he does find God. Now it's also striking that there is no chiastic structure in this chapter. This is not a cyclical chapter. This is a linear chapter. It goes from the point of, of the, uh, from the first point, from the starting point, and it ends at a very different point where it started, not in terms of the suffering, not in terms of the externals, but in terms of the internal experience of the sufferer himself.